Today, uh, I'm going to look at the persecuted church. And we've talked about uh, in the introduction, I talked about the fact that when we look at these seven churches, Christ is speaking. That's why this title of this series is called Christ's Last Words. This is in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Christ's Last Words uh, to the church because there are seven literal physical churches that Christ is speaking to in Revelation 2 and 3. But it's also Christ's last words to every Christian and every man and every person. Because if you look at these seven churches, when we look at these churches, we're going to see a lot of things about these churches, and they're pretty symbolic of probably churches today. Uh, that, that, that call themselves Christian churches. Uh, last week, we looked at the church at Ephesus, which would probably be uh, the busy church, all right? The church that did a lot. He said, Christ walking through. He knows everything about us. He said, I know of your service. I know that you're doctrinally pure. I know that you do a lot of good deeds and you do a lot of work. But then he says, after uh, commending them for something, then this is a pattern that we see in each one of these um, uh, in each one of these messages to the churches. Then he kind of gives them a, a challenge, a, a condemnation. He goes, "I know that you do all of that. You're busy for the gospel." He goes, "But I have this against you. Here's the challenge: You've lost your first love. You've fallen out of love with me. In other words, you love your work more than you love love me. You love doing things for the church more than you love me. And so he says, repent and do the things that you did at first. And then he says, and if you do, you're going to receive blessings. And so uh, there are a lot of us that that way." Uh, I think if you look at a lot of churches, they're very busy for the gospel, but you walk in there, there ain't a lot of love. Anybody ever been in a church like that? Anybody known any Christians like that? Boy, they would, they're doctrinally pure. They'll serve. They do this. But, man, to be around them, it's like you're around a grouch for the gospel. And uh, that is not who we're supposed to be. And today I'm going to be looking at the second church that he speaks to, uh, and it is the persecuted church. Uh, we are blessed to live in a space in an area. We are we're in a country where we have the freedom to preach. We don't like everything that's going on in this country. We don't like everything that happens in this country. We don't like everything that happens in the court system in this country from time to time. But in general, we're not persecuted for our faith. However, you take this church and you take this gospel and you plant it somewhere in the Middle East or you plant it somewhere in some places in Asia and different, and that, that would be a persecuted church. You, would, uh, you, you hear of places where there's the underground church or uh, a church that is persecuted. You look in places uh, like Iraq where just a few years ago there were several million Christians and they've about wiped them all out. They've about wiped them all out. And so uh, when we come to the church today, it's Smyrna. Uh, the Greek word Smyrna means persecuted. And so we're going to look at the, uh, the, uh, the persecuted church today. And let me just tell you the pattern again that we're going to see uh, here is that usually in each one of these, there's an address to the congregation, and it is usually a specific congregation. It's a specific, specific location. Hey, can I help you? Are you Mercedes, all right, very nice. Hey, or you can just skip it, and those lights will go off when the battery dies. It's uh, that's the way we do things around here. Hey, thank you. 
All right. Um, so usually what you do is there's a, there's a pattern we're going to see. There's an address to a particular congregation, uh, the introduction of who's speaking. It always is some uh, a reflective character of who Jesus is. Then a statement regarding the condition of the church. Then uh, kind of a condemnation on the condition of the church. If there's something that Jesus wants them to repent of, he will mention that. Then he gives them a command uh, to do something. Then an encouragement for all Christians in all churches. And then always a promise of a reward. Uh, that's the beauty of walking in faith, that regardless of where we are, there's always a reward, regardless of who we are. Uh, even last week in the Ephesian church, he says, man, you've left your first love. He says, but if you repent and do the deeds that you did at first, at the end of the day, uh, you're going to enjoy paradise, all right? That's what we see consistently. Jesus is always the one speaking, and we're going to see uh, again, that when he talks to the angel or the messenger of the church, he's talking to the pastor and the church leaders of a specific church. And there is a specific church in Smyrna. And that's what we're going to see today. And as we look at it, look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. And let me read it to you. And then we're going to walk back through it uh, verse by verse and really, really phrase by phrase. Uh, this is what it says, picking up in verse 8 of chapter 11. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. He says in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Still you are rich. I know of, your slander, I know of the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. But they are actually of the synagogue of Satan. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. He says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. He says, but be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And whoever hears, here's the reward, and whoever hears, them, hears these words of mine, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And one who is victorious will not be hurt at all, even by the second death. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for these guys. And thank you for the opportunity just to, um, just to look into your word and be challenged. Uh, God, as we think about uh, the church in Smyrna, uh, wherever we are um, in our own lives, uh, um, if, if we are persecuted, maybe at the office or, or, or somewhere within our family, I pray that we would take these words, we'd hear them well. Uh, for those, I want to pray right now, God, for the persecuted church. Um, as we look around this world and as I read uh, the stories and the reports, there are, there are more Christians um, uh, last year and this year who will lose their life for the gospel than ever before just because they follow you. And so, God, we pray for those churches that they would, uh, as, um, as is shared right here, remain faithful. And let us do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Uh, when you look at this... Um, at this uh, church, uh, remember I told you the pattern is, is, is Jesus talks to the main messenger angel. Uh, he, he encourages them for a certain thing, really commends them for a certain thing. Then he challenges them to repent. You'll notice as I read there, there was no challenge. There was no repent or else in here. There are only two of these seven churches that Jesus does not say anything negative about. 
One is the church at Smyrna right here, the suffering church, the persecuted church. Part of that is probably because they're purified. Uh, they're just holding on. And the next one we're going to see in a couple of weeks, the church at Philadelphia. Uh, the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. He doesn't condemn them for anything. So this is one of two churches that he doesn't say, hey, change. Uh, change your pattern. Change your lifestyle. Change what you are doing. All right. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 to 11, in the church at Smyrna, we're talking to the suffering church. We're talking about believers and two believers who are suffering. And I want to remind you, this is a literal church in the day that John is writing. They are, they, these are literal Christians who are enduring hardship and persecution. And so um, let's just jump back in. Look back to verse 8. He says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. In other words, here's what I'm writing. He said, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Let's talk first of all about the church. Uh, that word Smyrna means suffering. It means bitter. It means uh, a sour, all right? So even by the name of the place and the name of the city, it means bitter, sour, suffering, all right? So how would you like to the, what, what if we weren't uh, Cottonwood Creek? What if we were Bitterness Baptist Church? You know, what if, would, would you join uh, what if we were the persecuted? What if, what if we just had a, a sign up out there that we are the persecuted church? Come on. Uh, how many of you would, no, I, I want to go to that church that I want to go to the church of prosperity. Uh, I want to go to the church of comfort and ease, right? I, I want to go to the blessed church, right? I want to go to the church where the wind's always at my back and the sun's always at my face. And when I'm walking, I'm always walking downhill. That's the church that I want to go to. But that's not this church. This church right here is a church that uh, they're in the middle of a city and they are being persecuted and they are suffering, but they are growing because the gospel is growing. Because just as Shane talked about, they were sharing the gospel. They were reaching out and people were coming to faith in Christ. But in Smyrna, if you came to Christ, chances are the rest of your days were filled with bitterness. The rest of your days were filled with struggle and hardship. And so that's what he says to the church. Uh, man, I've noticed this, and you've probably noticed this uh, for a while, and you've probably heard the cliche or the thought or the note, that when we go through trials, they have a tendency to either make us bitter or better. How many of you have heard that statement before? When you go through trials and difficulties, we either get bitter or better. And I've known a lot of people that as long as things are good, man, they are just happy and they are fun-loving, but as soon as something goes wrong, they go from being happy to bitter. And what I've noticed about bitterness is those who are bitter love to make other people around them bitter. Anybody know that? They never keep it to themselves. Uh, they want a crowd. Bitterness loves company. But if you are rolling through a difficulty or you're rolling through a hardship right now, I want to encourage you to listen to these words right here and make sure that your bitterness, uh, your, your, your persecution doesn't make you bitter, but it makes you better. And, and that's the commendation. That's what Jesus says to the church at, at Smyrna. He says, man, he says, the beauty of your persecution is it hadn't made you worse. He says, as a matter of fact, it's made you better. It hasn't made you shrink back from the gospel. It's made you press into the gospel. 
And he goes, and if you stay faithful, you don't have anything to worry about spiritually, ultimately, and eternally. But he also acknowledges while you're on this earth, you might experience problems. And so notice what he says. He says, the church. He says, and to the angel, that would be the pastor, the leaders, the deacons, the elders of the church there in Smyrna, write. And what does he write? Let's look at who's speaking here, and it's Jesus. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Who's he talking about? He's, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one that is speaking. This isn't a, a great orator speaking. This isn't a pastor speaking. This isn't a theologian who's talking here. It's These are the ones of him is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Look at those words, the first and the last. What is he talking about? That means, man, the eternally exist, existent one. Jesus Christ was here at the beginning, and he'll be here at the end. As a matter of fact, what John is doing through his revelation, he's receiving from the Holy Spirit, he is quoting all the way back from Isaiah chapter 41. If you want to write these down, you don't have to go there. Isaiah chapter 41 verse uh, uh, 4, and it's a combination of Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6. Let me just read those. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4 says, Who acts and carries out his decrees? Who summons the successive generations from the very beginning? He says, I, the Lord, do. I am at the very beginning, and I am at the very end. I and I alone. That's a pretty impressive thought, right? God says, who summoned all the generations at the beginning? And at the end of days, who's going to summon them all at the end? And God says, me? It was me, and it's me alone. What about Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6? It says, this is what the Lord, the Israel's king, says, who is also their protector. The Lord who commands the army says, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God but me. Let me get something to drink. Isaiah 44, verse 6. All right. Uh, all right, so I hope, sorry about that, guys. Uh, I just read the other day that we had a ragweed problem, and I think they're all ragged right here in my weeds. So um, anyway, Jesus is the one speaking. He says, I'm the first and the last, and he goes back, and, and we can go all the way to the Old Testament. It's a combination of Jesus was there in the beginning. He was there in the end. Now notice the next thing he says, who died and came to life again. What is he talking about? He's talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who was died, who buried, and rose again the third day. Now, part of that is, and the beauty, and, 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 and in each one of these conversations he has with the church or believers, um, there's something specific to Jesus' self-reflection of his speaking that identifies with the church. Now, what did I say the church at Smyrna was experiencing? What are they experiencing? Persecution. So Jesus said, I am the first and the last, and I am also the one who died and rose again. What is he saying? 
I'm the persecuted Savior, right? I'm the persecuted Savior. Now, the beauty of that and the reason why Jesus says that is because Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna or the church today that is persecuted or the Christians today who are persecuted, I can identify with everything you're going through. Does that make sense? So notice how Jesus does it. He says, I can identify with everything you're going to. Yeah. Absolutely. Persecution. And you know, we're going to that passage right there. All right, just hang on. That's a good word. What he basically said is he said the persecution was coming from the Jews. That's exactly what we're going to see here in a second. But let me just stay right here. Now, the important part is this. If you are enduring persecution, if you're enduring hardship, you have Jesus to look to. And I love that as our high priest. What does it say in Hebrews? If you have Scripture open, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. It says, And he set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. For surely, I'm in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, For surely his concern is not for the angels, but he is concerned for Abraham's descendants. Therefore, listen to this, he had to be made like his brothers, talking about Jesus, our high priest, like his brothers and sisters in every, every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things related to God. Talking about Jesus, our high priest, to make atonement for the sins of the people. Look at, listen to verse 18. He says, for since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is also able to help those who are suffering and tempted. So what is he saying here? He's saying, as our high priest, Jesus identifies with everything we're going through, right? He was the one who died and rose again the third day. He is also the one who, as my high priest, when I call out to him, he identifies with every temptation, every suffering, every persecution, everything that you have. What about Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to write this down? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. If anybody's there, what's the last phrase? Yet he didn't sin. Yet he didn't struggle. He's been through everything that we are going to go through. He's going through every struggle that we are going through. He's going to, it, it's almost as if Jesus saying, I have faced everything you're going to face. I've been tempted in every way you're going to be tempted. I have been persecuted in every way you're going to be persecuted. I have in my flesh struggled with everything you're going to struggle with, yet I was the perfect example because I never sinned. Here's the beauty. That means when we get on our knees and we pray to God in those seasons of struggles, in those seasons of persecution, we are praying to a high priest 
who knows what it is what it's like. He knows everything we're going through because he's been there and he's done that yet without sin. Huh? And we fail. And the beauty is, even when I just read that, but even in that, he's the one who makes atonement for our failures. And so we're looking to a guy that he, he was the example. He did it all. No, no, never, never persecuted anybody. He threw over some tables, but other than that, yeah, you got to get that in there. But you're exactly, and so when we fail, we've got an incredible example. But we don't have an example like many of the Ephesian church. What, what are the Ephesian church? They, they just walked around patting themselves on the back. They were proud. They are arrogant. I, you know, I would never do this, and I would never do that, and I would never do that. And, man, they were wagging their finger at people who were struggling with, with this sin or that sin. And that's why he said, hey, you've forgotten. What are the first and second greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. They, quote, loved God. They just didn't love anybody else. And man, right here, he's saying, man, if you're going through a struggle, if you're going through a hardship and you cry out and we pray to Christ, we are praying to one who's been there, but he didn't do that. Yeah. I'm going to answer that in a question in a few minutes. Here's what I believe. I absolutely will get there. Let me keep rolling through, all right? So now, let's go to the next phrase. Uh, let's jump in there because that's a good question. And uh, he says, I know. Look at verse 9. He says, I know of your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. He says, I know of your slander of those, and this is back to the phrase you're talking about, who say they are Jews and they are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Man, here's what it seems. Suffering was their lot in life. I'm going to say that again. It seems that suffering was their lot in life. Anybody ever know anybody like that? Yeah. And, and remember what I said. This was a literal physical church filled with literal physical Christians who they were in a place of suffering. But I also said that all seven of these words to the church, I believe, are seven words to individual Christians today. Because in this room, I believe... Probably when we look through these, we would see a Christian that was similar to each one of these churches. Some in here that would never compromise the gospel. They would never, uh, you know, veer off the path doctrinally. They would never go do anything immoral. But love someone? That's not their game plan. I think we're going to look at Church of Philadelphia. Man, they love and love. There are some people that they love, 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 but they've got to struggle in a different place. I bet we could see someone here. You might be in here or, or not. You're lukewarm. Some of you are just kind of sitting there going, I'm kind of lukewarm on this message. Let's speed it up, Pastor. All right? Uh, you know what I'm saying? Every type of church, but also every type of Christian, these people, this church, it seemed that their lot in life was one of suffering. And there are times that we can, we can journey through the same life group and the same path and the same seasons of life and live in the same zip code and worship the same Savior. 
And you look at one person over here, and it seems like it is trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble. And the guy sitting right next to him, it seems like it's blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. How, how many of you know what I'm talking about? And that's exactly what we see. And so these guys, their lot in life seem to be one of struggle. That's why I get furious when I think of the heresy of the prosperity gospel that I hear preached and taught. That, man, all you got to do is believe and give a little and you're going to be blessed. I want you to know, and I'm saying this with all sincerity in my heart, if I could find that in Scripture, I would be preaching it to you every Sunday. If I could find it in Scripture, if I could find in Scripture that every Christian that ever got sick was going to be healed, I guarantee you I'd preach it every Sunday. Does that make sense? I want you to know I wouldn't shrink back from preaching that gospel. Matter of fact, I would embrace that gospel like crazy. But here's what I know. And Jesus, if Jesus, how many of you think if Jesus is the one talking to the church and to Christians that we probably ought to listen? Jesus is saying right here, there are a bunch of Christians that their lot in life is poverty, and once they've gotten to the end of their poverty, that's when persecution starts. How many of you think that sounds like a great lifestyle, right? So if you see someone journeying through that, don't naturally think it's because of their own sinfulness. Because when we look at this, remember I said there are only two of these seven churches we're going to look at that Jesus doesn't chastise because of some sin in their life. One of them was this group. Jesus was saying, you are not suffering poverty and persecution because of your sin. You're not. It's just your lot in life. And this side of heaven, we won't know why. This person suffers and this person's blessed. This person dies at 30. Sorry about pointing at you, Stan. And this person lives to be a billion. You know, you got Jiminy Christmas. Uh, what is it? Jiminy Cricket. Remember, how many of you remember saying that? I'm going to live to be 103, whatever. And some of us are Jiminy Cricket. Man, my family, and if, if you know anything, you just, just look at my life insurance rates. When your dad dies at 49 and his dad dies before uh, younger than that and your brother uh, commits suicide, you just go try to get an insurance policy that you can afford. I mean, you just go try. I mean, they're not out there. But somebody next to me, man, they talk about, I just got $500,000. They're six months older than me for half the premium that I'm paying. Why? Because that's some of our lots in life. Now, what do we do? Do we moan and groan and whine about it? They didn't. They just kept serving and kept loving and kept preaching, and the church kept growing in spite of of their persecution, and that's where we need to be. All right, so let me journey on. All right, so notice what he says. Well, what were some of the types of suffering? I want you to, if you've got a pen, write these down, and we're going to see these right in here. First of all, they were experiencing in that area, in Smyrna, a governmental persecution. There was pressure, and we can think of countries around here that the government persecutes, persecutes the gospel. The government is part of the persecution. He says, I know your tribulation, man. That word tribulation is a very graphic term. It, it, it conveys uh, an intense, constant pressure from above that just squeezes the life out of you. So I, I think, in, and if you look at the history and you read the history of Smyrna, right about this time, the government was against the gospel. 
the government there in Smyrna was against the gospel. And notice what he says. And Jesus was aware these Christians in Smyrna were suffering literally. Uh, they were having the life, this word tribulation, the life squeezed out of them by the oppression and the restrictions of the government. You know, and, and we're always as Christians, we're faced with this dilemma. If you want to write down some passages, uh, Romans chapter 13. Uh, in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 to 7, if you want to make note of this, what does Paul tell believers? He says, respect the government and institutions, right? He says, honor the government and authority. Why? Because they wield the sword to keep order in society. Well, let me ask you a question. When you, who is Paul talking about? What government? He's talking about the Romans. How many of you think that the Romans, man, they just love Jesus and love Christians? No. But what was he saying? They're still the authority, and we need to honor the authority. Why? Because even in their imperfect way, in their sinful way, they do keep anarchy from happening. Does that make sense? And so here's the Christian dilemma. Paul, and let me tell you, if you ever think, and trust me, I do, that our government is a mess, compare what you think our government is like compared to what Paul was telling the Roman believers to follow in the Roman government. Probably not even in the same zip code. But Paul in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 to 7, here's the dilemma. He says, honor the authorities that are above you. You look at 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, man, honor those who are in authority above you. He says, but let's be honest, some of them are going to persecute you. So when do we stop honoring the authority? Here's the Christian dilemma. 1 Peter says, honor authority. Paul in Romans 13 says, honor authority. When do we stop submitting to the authority that is above us? When it directly contradicts our faith in Jesus Christ. What is the example? Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Remember, um, you had Peter and John who were preaching, and they were commanded not to preach in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. And they said, at the end of the day, throw us in prison if you want, persecute us if you want, kill us if you want, but it's better that I should obey God than man. So does that, that's the Christian dilemma. As much as I can, regardless of whether I like the laws or the, like the things that, are, that the government is doing, I am, as a believer, to honor the government. Even when I don't like what they do in, um, in a few short years or whatever, that, that if all of a sudden the Supreme Court flips completely the other way and they just come in and they just start toppling dominoes of Christian faith and they take away our freedoms, I'm to honor the government, even when I don't like it, the only thing I won't do is stop living Scripture. Does that make sense? That's the Christian dilemma. He says, what, is it better that I should preach Jesus or listen to the government? That is the one time that we say, you know what? You're not infringing on my faith. Make me a Smyrna believer. Persecute me if you want, but I'm not going to stop preaching the gospel. All right, now notice, so first of all, there's governmental pressures. I think there were economic pressures. You say, where do you see that? He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. That word, you might want to write this down. If you look in the original Greek word for poverty, guess what it means? It means poverty. These folks were, folks were poor, right? 
They were destitute. They didn't have materially. They were absolutely destitute, uh, probably because, from the way, the way Jesus says it here, probably because they were Christians. They were either being forced out of jobs. They were being forced out of making money. People would say, you know, there's a Christian baker. Don't buy, don't buy cakes from them. There's a Christian T-shirt maker. Don't buy T-shirts from them. They were poor. And they couldn't get a job, and they couldn't make a dime. And, and, and again, they were, they were that way because of their faith. That's exactly what Jesus said. He goes, I know your poverty and that you are poor not because you aren't diligent to work, not because you have a bad business model. He goes, you're poor because you're a believer in a society that hates believers. Does that make sense? So the government didn't like them. The community didn't like them. And they were poor, but I love those words. He says, I know your poverty physically, yet you are rich. What is he talking about? He says, physically, you are poor. Spiritually, you are rich. And now listen, let me tell you what. If you are blessed with physically being rich and spiritually being rich, you are doubly blessed, all right? You are doubly blessed. But what does he mean we are spiritually pure, uh, 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 rich? Here's what it is, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, what did Paul say in verse 3? He says, praise be to God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, he says, you are spiritually blessed. He says, you may be poor here, but you are spiritually blessed. And you can go look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. Uh, I love what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 13 and 14. He says, but rejoice Inasmuch as down here you participate in the sufferings of Christ. What are you saying? You suffer just like Christ did. So that you may be overjoyed when Christ's glory is revealed. You know what he's saying? Peter is saying, listen, the people who suffer down here actually live more of a pattern of a lifestyle of Jesus than those who don't suffer down here. You really want to identify with Jesus? It's not in our big houses and nice cars and air-conditioned rooms. It's when we suffer. It's when we're persecuted. It's in those down seasons and difficult seasons. That's where Jesus was. That's where Jesus was. When the hurricane comes through and destroys everything you have and you don't have insurance, now you're identifying with where Jesus was and who Jesus was. Does that make sense? And so that's why Peter says, listen, in your fellowship of the sufferings with Christ, he goes, that's when you identify most with Jesus and you will understand most the joy that is to be revealed. And so there's he says there's governmental persecution that was taking place. There's economic pressure that has taken place. These folks were poor. Here's another. There was religious persecution taking place. That's what was being talked about over here a few minutes ago, religious persecution. Where do you see that? Go back. Look at what it says. He says, I know of the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews but are not. They are actually part of the synagogue of Satan. 
Now, I told, I told you most of us wouldn't join the Bitterness Baptist Church, but I also want to encourage you, don't ever join the synagogue of Satan. Uh, you don't want to be a part of that church either. You don't, want to go, you don't want to go through the membership class at the synagogue of Satan. Now, what, he, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, those Jews that are attacking you, they're not Jews. He said, let's, let's don't kid ourselves. They're not Jews. He says, they are messengers of Satan. They are, they are of the devil. They are slanderers and persecutors. They are haters of the gospel. He says, they're, they're not mine. They're, they're of the synagogue of Satan. They're, and so here, that's what we need to know. Some people are going to persecute us, and they're going to say they're religious. But they're not. And he goes, don't kid yourself. You go all the way back to the beginning of the gospel. If you, if you don't notice, go all the way back to um, uh, the idea of, uh, of when the church exploded in Acts chapter 2, immediately they met with hardship and difficulty. But notice, he says, the blasphemy. Let me tell you, if you want to write this down, what does it mean, blasphemy? It means to slander. Basically, blasphemy means uh, to slander, uh, uh, to speak against, to attack. The Christians in Smyrna were being slandered and talked about all over town because of their faith. They were being slandered and talked about. But I want you to know, and and we will actually see, if you were to read the rest of the book of Revelation... You will also see later that same word blasphemy used about some of the same people who slander Christians also slandering God. And to some extent, I want you to know, when people slander the people of God, they're slandering God. When people slander you and me for the gospel, they are in effect slandering God. Our job is to make sure that their slander has no basis. I'm going to say that again. Our job as believers is to make sure their slander has no basis. If someone wants to slander me because I stand up in the pulpit every week and just like I do in here that I go verse by verse, scripture by scripture, passage by passage, and I preach the gospel and sometimes my message hammers you about your sin... If you want to slander me for that, go ahead. Go ahead. That's your problem, not mine. However, if I'm stealing from the church and I'm stuffing my pockets with the offering, every, every Sunday you see me walk out on my way to lunch and I'm rifling through as the pastor, I'm rifling through the offering and I'm sticking all the loose cash in my pocket and you want to talk bad about the pastor stealing from the church, that's probably legitimate slander. How many of you know what I'm talking about? All right? That wouldn't be blasphemy. That's just speaking the truth. Our job as believers is to make sure that if someone is going to slander us, they're slandering us, as Peter said, make sure they speak against you for doing good and not evil. But these folks who were slandering them were Jews. You go all the way back to Acts chapter 13, verse 45. It says, but the Jews uh, saw the crowds and were filled with jealousy. In other words, when they were preaching and the crowd showed up, these, uh, uh, these rabbis and these Pharisees and the teachers say, you know what? Crowds used to show up when we used to teach. And now all of a sudden, they're what? 
they're jealous. Boy, if you look in Acts chapter 13, verse 50, jump a few minutes, a, few, a little bit further down. It says the, uh, the Jews and the, um, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. If you look in Acts chapter 14, it says the Jews uh, who refused to accept the gospel uh, and to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers and sisters in Christ. So listen. You go all the way back to the founding of the church, and there were Jews who didn't like the church. Acts chapter 17, man, the Jews were jealous in Acts chapter 17, verse 5. So blasphemy, if you want to know blasphemy, it means basically slander, slander uh, against God and God's people. So here's the challenge. Here's the encouragement. Notice what he says, picking up in verse 10 and 11. Uh, he says, uh, a physical persecution. Here it is. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. They've already suffered governmental persecution, economic pressures, and physical struggles, physical hardship, all right? They've been slandered. They've been talked about. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. He says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. He says, your job is to be faithful even to the point of death, and then I will give you the life as your victor's crown. Now, let me just walk through that, all right? He says, do not be afraid. So we've seen slander, verbal abuse. We've seen government um, uh, persecution. We've seen economic failure. Now he's talking about physical persecution. You are physically going to be persecuted. You are going to be put in chains for the gospel. It's one thing because of the gospel for your boss to walk in and fire you, right? It's one thing for uh, because of the gospel for people in the office to talk and slander about you because you won't act and do this way. It's one thing for the government not to make it easy for you to live out your, faith, uh, your, your Christian life. It's quite another thing for the government to show up in your house and this happens in places and say, do you have a Bible? And you say, I have a Bible. And they say, great, you're going to jail. This is phys And he says, get ready. See, their lot in life is one of suffering and persecution. He says, some of you, he says, but do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. What is he saying to Smyrna? It's bad, but it's going to get worse. That's not much of an encouraging message, is it? He says, it's bad, but it's going to get worse. Now, let me just walk through it. He says, I tell you, the devil is about to put some of you in prison. Why is he putting them in prison? To test you, to purify you. Remember when I started Daniel a couple of weeks ago? I said, sometimes God allows us to go through tests to purify us, to refine us, to get rid of all the junk in our lives. And then notice what he says. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. What does the 10 days mean? Here's what I believe. If you look through... Um, Scripture 10 is significance. Um, I read several things on this. The consensus that I believe most of the theologians come up with, and I probably agree with this, is the 10 is kind of metaphorical, but it really means that your suffering is temporary. There's a beginning and an end to it. I'll tell you, if you also look, uh, in those days, unlike our days, where we put people in prison for years and decades, right? And, and it wasn't that way then. As a matter of fact, you go look at the Roman prisons of that day, about 10 days is about all you could survive in a Roman prison. 
about 10 days. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like everybody had their own room and they had TV and they were fed three meals a day. Uh, you couldn't survive much beyond 10 days. If you were thrown in a Roman prison, one of a couple of things were usually happen. You were slapped around, beat up, you were whipped, and then you were just tossed back on the street and said, good luck, all right? Or it took them about 10 days to take you from accusation to death. So it's always short, okay? It wasn't like, you know, but 10 days, I believe the 10 days means regardless of what we go through, there's a beginning and an end. What did Peter say? He said, though you suffer for, can someone finish it? A little while. A little while. Now, I've been through suffering that I sure feel like this is longer than 10 days, right? So I don't think he's saying a literal 10 days. He's just using a figure of speech that, listen, you're not going to suffer forever. You're not going to suffer forever. And why does he say? He says, you will be persecuted for 10 days. Your job, what's their job when they're persecuted? What's my job when I'm persecuted? Stay faithful. Just stay faithful. Because remember, Satan was going to test them by throwing them in prison. What was he testing? Are you truly of the faith? So if after a day you recant, did you lose your salvation? No. You just demonstrated you were just a hanger-owner. You weren't a true follower of Jesus Christ, right? He goes, part of the test for the 10 days of persecution, whether it's governmental or whether it's poverty or whether it's slander or whether it's a literal physical 10 days in prison, he goes, it's a test of your faithfulness. So if you are going through persecution and hardship or economic pressures, stay faithful. Going back to the economic pressures, even in, in, in our church, in this area, in our zip code, we've got a couple of guys in our church who have been out of jobs for a long, long time just because of their career path and where they've been and the companies they work for and the technology they know and the age that they're at. And these are people that teach life groups at our church that are just languishing economically. The question is, will they stay faithful? And so notice what he says. He says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, jump down. He says, I tell you, the devil is going to put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Only your job is to be faithful. Now, look at verse 11. He says, and whoever hears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What's the second death? You can find it over in Revelation chapter 20. That's the lake of fire. That is the second death. That is, where, that is not the Bema seat where believers will be taken and judged for that which is good and that which is bad, where we will get our rewards that we will turn around and cast right back at Christ's feet. The second death or the last death is the death where the lake of fire where believers and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire for everlasting punishment forever and ever and ever. And he says, if you stay faithful and you love Christ... 
regardless of what they do to your physical body, they will never be able to touch your spirit. And you will receive the crown of victory and life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, your word today has penetrated our heart and challenged each and every one of us. God, let us hear what you had to say to the church in Smyrna. If we are walking in seasons of persecution uh, by government, uh, by economic pressure, by those who want to slander us for the gospel, uh, by even some sort of physical harm that someone might bring to us. Let us take our cue from the church in Smyrna that it is a test, that our call is to just remain faithful. Let's make sure, God, that people aren't slandering and attacking us because of sin in our lives, but because we have truly been faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And amen. God bless you guys. You all have a great day. Uh, first timers, welcome. Good seeing you all today. Have a good one.